And as we are beginning Advent, that's what it's about is looking, not only remembering the first time he came, but looking forward to when he will come again. And uh, as the Advent season is upon us, we are preparing and uh, our hearts and anticipating his coming again, but also uh, the celebration of Christmas and his first coming. And Christmas, as you guys well know, has become uh, in our culture, uh, a secular celebration, as well as a Christian one, which is fine by me. Our God has always sent the blessing of rain on all indiscriminately, on the just and the unjust, the scriptures say, spreading cheer to the world as his grace ripples outward. But we Christians can accidentally get caught up in confusing those two celebrations, which inevitably leads to the shallowing of our own celebration. And I mean, those celebrating Christmas who are not fully devoted to Christ, they must avoid the complexities and the clarity of doctrine in order to do what they want to do, which is celebrate only for a season and then move on unchanged. They must wash over the religious stuff in favor of some more, something more vague, right? And, and, be, and however, when, when people of faith become influenced by that, we may call for a simple spirit of worship and celebration without the complexities uh, and clarity of doctrine. But this kind of broad, indistinct celebration and worship encounters a practical problem because it's difficult to stir up any joy and excitement for around nothing in particular. In fact, I'd argue that it can't be done. So substitute saviors are offered in order to work something up so it's not a total letdown. Things like family or an abstract concept of loving kindness or nostalgia or consumerism, all of which are great things, well, maybe most of them, but the true drama and excitement and joy is not in shapeless sentimentality and cloudy comfort and amorphous aspirations of general goodness. It's rather found in the electric story of the God who made this world, bounding into it with purpose and passion to become one of us with all of the accompanying indignities of this groaning creation, not the least of which is being born. And that would not be the last. His humility would drive him not only to be born as a man, but to die as a man for humanity, to pass through our haunting veil of death and to give us hope beyond it. Christmas is ultimately the celebration of the incarnation. Even though the incarnation happened about nine months before his birth, it's much like the rolling away of the stone at the resurrection, right? Jesus was already gone, but the miraculous rolling away of the stone let us in on that miracle. And so it is with Christ's birth. And speaking of the resurrection, it derives its meaning from this first miracle of the incarnation. Because if he were only God, his death and resurrection would have no implications for us as men. And if he were only man, his death would just be one more among billions. But if he is God and man, then when human Jesus died, God died too. And when God, Jesus, rose from the dead, humanity rose too. Amen. Because they're one and the same. 
what we celebrate at Christmas is of infinite importance. And there was a man named Athanasius who knew this better than most. He fought hard very early in the life of the church against heresies that challenged the deity of Christ. And in particular, against one charismatic and influential heretic named Arius. And Athanasius was so zealous for the truth that he was exiled five times by four different emperors. Emperors often have a way of siding with heretics, if you read history. And years after Athanasius died, the orthodoxy he fought for shone so brightly, overcoming the darkness. And it was codified in a creed yet again, which even today, even today still bears his name, the Athanasian Creed. And this, for 1,500 years later, it still marks the faith of all genuine Christians. In the Athanasian Creed, we find these statements among many others. It says, the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. Perfect God and perfect man of reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting who although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. Dorothy Sayers, the novelist and playwright, she reflected on this grand truth saying, this is the essential doctrine of which the whole elaborate structure of Christian faith and morals is only the logical consequence. Now we may call this doctrine exhilarating, she says, or we may call it devastating. We may call it a revelation or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. And those who did hear of it actually called it news. Good news at that. Though we are likely to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. I love how she says the whole elaborate structure of Christian faith and morals is just the logical consequence of the doctrine of the incarnation. That doctrine is anything but dull. Once uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote a play that was very well received by uh, the public, even the secular people. And, and when she was asked about it by journalists and others and how she came up with it, her answers were not well received. Uh, she explained that the action of the play involves a dramatic presentation of a few fundamental Christian dogmas in particular, the application to human affairs of the doctrine of the incarnation. But many, when she told this answer, do they felt that uh, if there were anything attractive in the Christian philosophy, she must have put it there herself. They, they must be novelties imported to the faith by the feverish imagination of a playwright. But she said, I protested in vain against this flattering tribute to my powers of invention, referring my inquirers to the creeds, to the gospels, and to the offices of the church. I insisted that if my play were dramatic, it was so not in spite of the dogma, but because of it, that in short, the dogma was the drama. And she's right. The dogma is the drama. If we grow tired of it and find it an impediment to the stuff we really want out of Christmas, then that says more about us than it does about the truth. Amen. So this Advent season, as we approach Christmas, we are asking a question that is far too neglected. Why Christmas? When we say, why, when we say Christmas, we're, we mean the incarnation. God being born as man. God and man. One Christ. To quote the creed again, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One, altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. 
This is the good news of great joy that forever changed the universe. This is what we mean by Christmas. And when we say why, why Christmas? We mean to investigate the divine purpose in it. Many people pontificate superficially about the meaning of Christmas. But what does God have to say about why this had to happen? Why it was necessary to take such drastic and dramatic measures as this? And as we answer that question, we see that we need that, uh, that only a Savior who is fully God and fully man can perfectly fulfill the scriptures and perfectly fulfill our deepest and greatest needs. We need a champion to defeat our tyrannical enemies on our behalf. We need a prophet to speak the truth of God to us fully and finally in a tangible and relatable way. We need a we have need of a priest to bridge the chasm between God and man through sacrifice and intercession. We have need of a king to rule us as one of us and over us, yet, yet provide for us and protect us. We have need of a brother that can welcome us in his family into the household of God. And all of this can only be done by one who is fully man and fully God. And God, in his wisdom, continually points to the hope of one such as this throughout the Old Testament. So we will examine some of these scriptures together and see how Christ fulfills the scripture and how he fulfills our deepest needs. And you'll see each of these on the back of this inviter card that I hope you got uh, this morning. If you didn't get one, you can grab one on the way out. Uh, but we want you to use this to invite people for Advent and Advent and Christmas Eve. Um, but we want it to be a little bit more intentional than just handing it out. I want you to take this card and reflect on these roles of Christ and the texts that correspond to them. And whatever stirs your heart the most, as you pray through these, think about these, ponder on them, whatever stirs your heart the most makes you most excited about, about Christ and Christmas, take that one. And then when you hand this card to someone, say, I'd love for you to come to church with us this season. Uh, we're talking about why Christmas happened, why it needed to happen. And there's several reasons, but this is the one that stands out to me, just for example, because Jesus being born as fully human and fully God makes him the perfect person to bridge the gap between God and man. Amen. He is our ultimate priest. Something as simple as that. And you say, come hear about this with me and the other reasons. Something, something like that. We just, what I'm saying is whenever we thought about this, Andrew, uh, our worship pastor said, if we're going to ask people to hand out a card that says, why Christmas? They better be prepared to give an answer, right? And so, yeah, so be prepared to give an answer. Why Christmas? Maybe even this week's theme could be one of your answers. And this week, we're starting with Christ, our champion. And the best picture of what I mean by this is probably David and Goliath. Right, this story about this, this ancient practice called champion warfare, where one, the army, an army chooses a single uh, uh, champion to fight on their behalf, and the winner determines the outcome of the whole battle. And this is also found in epic poetry, like, uh, like the Iliad, you know, Achilles, the Greek champion. But we're probably more familiar with David and Goliath, because David served as the Israelite champion. He was the representative of his people in battle, and with God's help, he gained the victory for Israel over the Philistines. 
And David in this instance was a type of Christ, a living image foreshadowing our champion, Jesus, who conquered our enemies and assured us of victory because we share in his victory over our enemies. And this role of Christ, Christ our champion, this is foretold from the very beginning. When, When the first Adam, the representative of our race, faced the enemy and lost. Back when the ancient dragon who breathed lies instead of fire, despised the images of God and aimed to see his light of his glory in them snuffed out. And so he condescended to destroy the gardener king and his queen, knowing just how to do it because he knew himself and he knew just how his own evil heart clung to the few no's in a world full of yes. He knew how ravenous and unquenchable his own discontentment was. And he'd already seen how it spread like a disease through the spirits. And surely this vile, fleshy spirit hybrid could be coaxed to see their boundaries as prison walls, just like he had. He didn't challenge the positive commands of, of working the land and multiplying. He didn't, he, he's, those active commands had a practical purpose as well as a, a God-centered purpose. And so they weren't as, as pure. So he chose to challenge the same kind of command that he had come to hate. The command to trust this God to the point of giving something up. To abstain. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not prohibited as some cruel test or temptation. It was actually a gracious gift. It was an invitation Because this was the only command given that had no other purpose other than demonstrating faithfulness to God. Trust in him and love for him alone. God essentially said to Adam and Eve, do something just for me. For no other reason than that you love me. And the devil went after what to him seemed like the worst command because he knew to God it was the greatest command. And why did God value it so highly? Because it was purely for him. It was an invitation to what Jonathan Edwards calls true virtue. That which is solely and wholly for God. Because Edwards explained that any other motives for virtue are actually at their core the same motives for sin. Because if we do good things because we worry about what will happen if we don't, Or if we do good things because we want to be the kind of person who does good things, then we're being motivated out of fear or pride. We're being, we're, we're do, even though we're doing good, we are at root acting out of the same motivation that drives people to sin, fear and pride. We are obeying for the same reasons people disobey. But true virtue is holy and solely the fruit of love and adoration for God. So when God gave man a command that was holy and solely for him, he was opening up an opportunity for true virtue and to be truly and perfectly good. And more importantly, he was also opening up the opportunity to trust him, which is the foundation stone of any good and loving relationship, trust. He was saying, you can trust me. And because I love you, I want to give you the opportunity to actually trust me to live in that trust tangibly. It was a beautiful gift. But the devil in his arrogance 
thought that he could make it seem like a curse. If he could plant his own distrust like a wicked seed. And while he was undermining God's command and his character, he also decided to undermine his creation order. Not going to the man who was first, but going to the woman. And he started with a lie of emphasis because he said the truth, because the truth is they could eat from every tree, all but one. But the devil says, you're not allowed to eat of any tree you choose. It's a lie, but it's slightly disguised. And he adds another layer of cover by posing it as a question. But the dragon, true to form, lacked much restraint. And he quickly drops any pretense and subtlety. And the next thing he says is an all-out, full-fledged lie in contradiction to what God has said clearly. He says, you will not surely die. But then his wickedness reaches to unbelievable heights because then he promises her something that he knows God has put in her by, his very nat- by her very nature. Promising her something that she already has. Promising her something that she will actually forfeit. Promising her she will be like God. But he knows that she is more like God now than, than he ever could be. And he also knows that nothing could be further from the likeness of God than sin. But he has given himself over to lies. He rejoices in them as a power that his enemy didn't have. He wields them like a weapon against God's beloved humanity. And this was Adam's enemy. His enemy who had infiltrated his garden had sunk his weapon of deception deep into the heart of Adam's own wife and landed her under a a curse of death. Our representative Adam was now to do battle. Now he would face, he would need to face his first enemy with the fate of the race and the world in his hands. How would he respond? Would he summon the beasts that he knew by name because he named them and wage war against this beast? Would he speak truth like a battle cry with thunderous confidence to drown out the lies? Would he call on the maker of heaven and earth that he walked with daily to to silence the serpent and spare his wife and if his justice demanded her life to take his life instead? Is this how our representative would respond? No. He simply took the fruit from his doomed wife's hand and he ate it. And whether he chose her over God and wanted to join her, or whether he chose himself over God and wanted whatever God was withholding. I don't know. But one thing is certain that in that choice, he actually chose the enemy over God. And the enemy must, as he watched them clamor for clothes in their shame, he must have been giddy with victory. But then came the sound that filled him with hatred and fear. The sound of God himself walking in the garden. And then he watched as the woman pointed her finger to him, to the serpent. And then the serpent heard these words from the mouth of God. This is our text this morning. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray.
our Father. Make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So notice in that text that we just read, God gave a promise to the serpent, a promise of his demise. He said, you think you've conquered humanity, but a human man will conquer you. You shall bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And the distinction between heel and head there is that of a mere temporary setback on the heel and a definitive death blow on the head. In the first few pages of scripture, it's a prophecy of our Messiah, Jesus. That far back, the offspring of woman who would crush the dragon's head. And I hope you can see why we're here on this first Sunday of Advent. Why Christmas? Because why, why a, a man born of woman who was also divine? Because he would be the serpent slayer that was foretold from the beginning. He would be the fully human. He would be fully human in order to fully represent humanity as Adam had. And yet he would be fully God in order to reclaim humanity from their infinite fall and to overwhelmingly conquer the enemy completely. To overcome darkness with light and lies with truth incarnate. This is why Christmas needed to happen. This is why Christmas is the advent of our champion. And from the beginning, the enemy tries to destroy him, doesn't he? Right? His, death, his birth triggered a genocide that he narrowly escaped. And he experienced betrayal and brutality. His heel would indeed be bruised, but he would overcome. Romans talks of Christ as the second Adam, right? That song that we just sang, see the, the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Right? He is another sinless representative for humanity, our elder brother and covenant head of our fallen race. And Jesus, the second Adam, would face the same enemy as the first, who had only grown more powerful and more practiced. And there are four instances that I want to point to in Jesus' life as our champion. So first is when he began his public ministry. He was baptized in the Jordan River, you remember? And then what happened after that? God spoke audibly from heaven his approval and love over his son. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ. And then after that, the Holy Spirit did something else. He led Jesus into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed and prepared for what was to come. And then the ancient enemy came, deploying his old tactics, questioning the integrity of God and twisting his words. He said, if you are the son of God, if, he's implying there's some question about it. But what had just happened right before Jesus came into the wilderness? God openly and clearly declared the truth about Jesus's identity as the son of God. And Satan audaciously undermines the truth of what God has clearly said. Twice he tries this tactic of trying to get Jesus to prove what Jesus already knows to be true. That he is the son of God. 
But Jesus speaks the truth louder than Satan's lies. And he stands like, a, like an oak of righteousness rooted in the truth of God's revelation. So Satan moves to his other tactic that he used with Eve. Which if you remember, what, what he, he promised her glory. He promised, so here he promises Jesus glory to side with him instead of God. He told Eve that if she disobeyed, she would, she would be like God. Promising her glory that she would actually be forfeiting if she listened to him. And he does the same with Jesus. He promises authority over all kingdoms of the earth and their glory. But of course, we know that every knee will bow to the Son of God. And all authority in heaven and earth is, will be given him. And he would actually be forfeiting the very thing that the devil is promising him. But our Lord sees the tempter for what he is. Evil. And he knows who he is and what he is and what he has done. And he hates him. And so when he dares to suggest that Christ worship him, no matter how great the, whatever benefit he could give, he is filled with righteous anger and he casts him away to await his final defeat. Jesus does battle with the tempter and he overcomes. And when he steps out of this encounter, everywhere he goes, Evil wears the face of defeat and dread before him. If you read the Gospels, this is what it looks like. We think of Jesus as a prophet and a miracle worker and a healer, and he was. But rarely do we stress his role as an exorcist, which he also was. He cast out countless demons by the mere power of his word. And people take notice. They took notice. And at one point, the religious leaders were grasping at straws to explain this. And they say he casts out demons because he's working with the prince of demons. And Jesus calmly confronts the stupidity of that argument. But then he goes further to say what he's really doing. And it sheds light on exactly who Jesus is and what he is about. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you're not beholding. Well, he's saying what you're beholding is not Satan being against Satan. That's absurd. What you are seeing is someone stronger than Satan, kicking down the doors of his stronghold, tying him up and taking back what he has stolen. This is who Jesus is. He is our conquering champion who overwhelms and overcomes our captor, our enemy, and frees us from his tyranny. As C.S. Lewis says, that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in this enemy-occupied territory and is calling us to take part in his grand campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing to our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. Christ is besieging the enemy's fortress. But the enemy doesn't go down without a fight. He infiltrates Christ's ranks with a pawn named Judas who betrays Jesus after Jesus loved him and served him and washed his feet. But Jesus knows what he's done and he knows what's coming. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and he prepares for the final showdown. But this preparation would prove to be its own trial. When, when the Son of God stood at the precipice of hell, 
and trembled as he stared into the vast wreckage of human evil with its eternal consequences. And he sweated and he wept and he gritted his teeth and he looked back up to heaven with courage and love like the world has never seen. And he prayed the prayer that changed the world. The prayer that changed history and eternity. The prayer that, that he prayed to his father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. The prayer that the devil fears for any human to pray. The prayer that undermines this whole history of sin and temptation. Where the first Adam said, God, not your will, but my will be done. The second Adam prayed, not my will, but your will be done. The prayer that lit the wick of a world-changing revolution of love and faith. The prayer that would lead to the undoing of the devil and all his deeds. The prayer that makes your salvation possible. That made you able to pray this prayer. This same prayer and become a part of that same powerful love. Not my will, but your will be done. And he paved the way for us. He has led us by example. He has taken the helm of the ship and set our course. He, we, we know that it is the will of God, of, the God of extraordinary love that we submit our wills to. So we need not fear that he will do a worse job than us at running our lives. We need not fear that he will love us less and take care of us less than we will for ourselves. He has shown us his power and his love we can trust him. And we can trust that trust when we, when we place it in him fully. It blows away the fog of lies that the devil continues to cough out even on his deathbed. Lies that doing your will and not his is really the way to the good life. You can't trust him, he says. You, he's just trying to keep you from the good stuff. You can have, you can have greatness if you give in to ambition. You can have riches if you give in to greed. You can have peace if you give in to comfort and sloth. You can have love if you give in to your passions. You can have hope if you strive to make this world your home. Whatever you want, you'll find it in your will being done, not his. But our champion's prayer has blown like a mighty wind in our hearts, clearing away the, billow, the, the lies that are billowing from this fading dragon's nostrils. And it allows us to see him for what he clearly is, crippled with a mortal wound, doomed to destruction by our champion, the Christ, who chose the will of the Father. And let's see where that will led him to the ultimate bruising of his heel. The serpent and his, bit hard as the seed of the woman crushed his head. Our champion faced the ultimate trial on our behalf. He faced the wrath of God. What the devil hoped to have heaped on our heads so that his misery would have our company. But the son of God bore it instead. Removing the serpent's fangs taking away his only dangerous weapon, which is the continued reminder that we must bear the weight of our sin. 
And so our champion, like a giant before a bully, reached down and plucked his weapon from his hand, showing just how weak and frail the devil is before the power and plan of God. This is why Colossians 2 says that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And rulers and authorities is Paul's way of talking about the devil and demons who have in this present world have influence over those who are driven and dominated by sin. But he says that on the cross, they were put to open shame and triumphed over. Why? Because they could not, through all their temptations and deceit and destruction, they could not claim a single soul from Christ who took all our sin and guilt upon himself. And remove from our enemies any charge they can bring against us. This is what we read last week, remember? Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not angels, the text tells us. Not rulers. Not powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has triumphed over it all on the cross. As we sang in that hymn that we just sang before I started preaching, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb. How? In victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. And there on the cross, our champion faced our other enemy as well. The enemy that was unleashed on us through the destroyer's deceit and our subsequent sin. He faced death. And that hymn goes on. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord. He is alive. He conquered death. He overcame our greatest foe. And he has not only taken the weapons from the hand of the accuser, he has also taken the sting from death itself. No grave could ever restrain him. He has done what none of us could ever do. Why Christmas? Because we need a champion who could overcome death itself and bring us through it with him. As we sang, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. We too will share in his resurrection. This is the thing about our champion. He doesn't merely do it instead of us. He brings us with him in his victory. He won the decisive victory, but he invites us into it. We all will trample death underfoot one day when he returns and we are resurrected like him. He has dealt the death blow to the devil and to death. But when we behold this wondrous mystery, we rally as his troops with renewed energy, with encouraged hearts to do battle with him in the lead. We take heart and take courage to fight the fight of faith. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His victory is our victory. 
His resurrection is like the appearing of Gandalf at the battle of Helm's Deep. Do you remember that scene? If you don't know the scene I'm talking about, it's epic. In the Lord of the Rings, there's the scene where the good guys, their fortress is being overrun by this evil army. And they fight all through the night and and their defeat seems inevitable. But at the dawn, they look to the east and Gandalf appears in glory. And then a whole army appears behind him and the good guys rejoice and their resolve strengthens as their powerful ally fights with them and for them. Right whenever it seems so dark, the light shines and our strength is renewed at his appearing and our troops fight on with him to victory. There will come times when the battle is hard. And when you start to fight in your own strength, it will seem impossible. You can't do it unless a great knight, a warrior plucks you up onto his horse and gives you armor and weapons. And he says, keep fighting. And, and when you are tempted to give up, you look to the one on whose horse you are on and, and see his strength and remember his welcoming love. And you see his eyes aflame with confidence that you have little known. And you pray the same prayer that he prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. And when temptations to fear and pride call on you, pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and pray it with confidence, the confidence of one on the winning side. For scripture tells us that our faith is the, in the truth and the promises, that faith is a shield against the enemy's fiery arrows. And our faith is in our champion who has decisively delivered us and will fully and finally deliver us from the evil one. So may we face trials and temptations like he did. But more than that, may we face them with him because he is at our side. Why Christmas? Because our fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ is our champion who overcame all of our enemies as one of us, yet stronger than us to the point of being able to bring us with him to victory. He is our triumphant savior He is our hope and our confidence. Remember him. Fight with him. Hope in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by our need and by your provision. And we thank you. You have given the greatest gift. You have made certain that the enemy is defeated, will be defeated by doing the unimaginable. You sent your own divine, eternal son to become one of us. May we be stunned by this, this Advent season. May we be in awe of him. And may we remember that he is our triumphant champion and let, us give, let that give us confidence and hope and courage. And we pray with him now. Amen.